0: Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that we're standing on holy ground because we're about to open Your Word. Thank You that as we look at what is here, we're going to see more of the person of the Lord Jesus. Thank You so much for what is revealed about Him. Thank You for this revelation of the Lord Jesus. And thank You for permitting us to be able to see it, rejoice in it, be encouraged by it, And then see the message that he wants to give to the churches. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to be introducing the letters to the seven churches, which are found in Revelation chapter two and Revelation three, but we're not going to get into the study of those two chapters tonight at all. But we will introduce them and we will have an overview. And I might add this, that I am indebted to a local artist for the background that we're using for Revelation on Sunday night. Some of you may may know him. His name is William C. Ressler, and uh, he granted me permission to be able to use this. Uh, It's called the bridge, and I think you can see the reminder every time we start a message in Revelation. Um, You'll see the bridge, and if you meditate on that, the message of that in and of itself will be very clear. So tonight, we're going to be looking at several factors we're going to be looking first of all at the things that you have seen the you here would be the apostle john these are things that he had seen and he had recorded for us now what that means is that we've already seen one third of the divine outline of the book of revelation we've already seen a third of that outline not a third of the book of revelation but a third of the outline that appears in verse 19. You may recall in verse 19, it says, write therefore the things that you have seen. And those things have passed already. They're in chapter one. Those that are, and I'm going to make a point that those are the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. And those that are to take place after this, after the letters to the seven churches or even to the church age. So we're a third of the way through the divine outline of the book in uh, chapter one, verse 19. John was told to write the things he had seen, and so he wrote chapter 1. He told us about what I've called the Patmos portrait of the Lord Jesus. I'd like to reread chapter 1 right now. I'd like to do that for several reasons. One is so that those of you that were away on Memorial Day weekend won't lose the blessing of verse 3. Remember, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. Of course, it doesn't stop there. Those who hear and who keep What is written in it for the time is near. So I'd like to reread chapter 1 to give us that image, that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to be seeing tonight is something that I believe is very, very special. Following on the heels of this morning, the exalt exalting of the Lord Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus. And if nothing else tonight, I hope that each one of us will be able to see once again the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of His majesty, and all of His glory, because He is being revealed to us in a way that heretofore He had not been revealed to anyone. So I'm going to read chapter 1 once again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then once again, as I read a moment ago, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, now, you notice we're in the middle of the Trinity here. This is a, a salutation and a blessing coming from all three members of the, the Godhead. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We've begun to see the Lord Jesus revealed. We've begun to see the Lord Jesus Unveiled, manifested, the apocalypsis, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, we talked about what that word means. It is an unveiling. Yesterday, we had a bride down here with a veil on. Now, she didn't come in with the veil down, but had she, as many other brides do, the unveiling is something that's very special to the groom and to everyone else. But this unveiling, we're seeing the Lord Jesus in a different light than we've ever seen him before. Revealed, unveiled, manifested. I'd like to share again a quotation, a long one that I shared three weeks ago when we began to see the revelation of the Lord Jesus. But if you were here with us three weeks ago, I didn't do the quote justice because I had to clear my throat and cough and do a whole lot of things during the whole thing. And I'd like us to hear it again. This is by W.A. Criswell. And he begins his quotation with these words. The first time our Lord came into this world, He came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with His manhood. His Godhead was hidden by His humanity. And then he went on to say, with reference to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to His unveiling, Just once in a while did his deity shine through, as on the Mount of Transfiguration, or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh in our humanity. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame, misery, and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples. But the last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. That was a part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By his stripes we are healed. But then is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blasphemous, this godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of His Godhead. That all men shall look upon Him as He really is. They shall see Him beholding in His, holding in His hands the title deed of the universe holding in His hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, and in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in His pierced and loving hands. That was an introduction. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see the Lord Jesus unveiled, and we saw a lot of that already in chapter 1, but there is much, much more to see. Question, what have we seen since then? In the three weeks that we've looked at this together since Jesus is beginning to be unveiled, two weeks ago we saw the majesty of Jesus. And now I'm going to ask you to work very, very hard in the next few minutes. All of you have something open to Revelation chapter 1, some form of communication. I'm going to be asking you to look, to read, and to listen at the same time as on parade we see some of what we've already seen in the unveiling of the Lord Jesus. We've seen His majesty. Look at verse 5. And I'm not going to read all these verses again, but we've seen Jesus as the faithful witness. That is the one who spoke truth no matter what the consequences. The one who actually is truth. In verse 5 also, we've seen Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. Not chronologically, but in preeminence or supremacy or rank. Also in verse 5. We've seen Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you look on the screen later in Revelation 19, verse 16, we're going to see this reiterated. On his robes robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And elsewhere in Scripture, he's the Lord of Kings. For those of you that are despairing about our election coming up soon, It's okay. We've got one who is the Lord of all the kings, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and Lord of kings. That's the Lord Jesus. Also in verse 5, we've seen Jesus as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Look at verse 6. We've seen Jesus as the one who made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God the Father. He enabled us to be His ambassadors, to be His representatives, to be His kingdom of priests. Verse 6, we've seen Jesus as the one to whom be glory and dominion. That's power forever and ever. Verse 7, we've seen Jesus as the one who is coming. And it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him a sequel to this morning when Dick Austin was with us and took us to Philippians chapter 2 every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is lord to the glory of God the father that's every knee and every tongue and and to me it's so significant even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him this isn't fiction And some would say, that sounds awfully harsh. Well, it's going to have to sound harsh because that's the way it's written. That's exactly what God has told us. Look at verses 12 and 13. We've seen Jesus among the golden lampstands. And we just read a few moments ago, those golden lampstands are the seven churches. So we've seen Jesus with his church, with his people. That's where he is. That's where his heart is. That's where his love is. That's where his care is. It's for those who are a part of his church. Verse 13, we've seen Jesus identified as the Son of Man, a messianic title from Daniel 7. Verse 13, we've seen Jesus as our great high priest. Now let's take a brief break here and let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 4. We didn't look at this before, but I want us to see three verses in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. We saw Jesus dressed as the high priest would. And so we infer from there that Jesus now is identified as our great high priest, further identified all through the book of Hebrews. But here in chapter 4, look at verse 14 with me. Since then, we have a great high priest. And now we see in view the ascension of the Lord Jesus, who has passed through the heavens... And that's where he is right now, our great high priest, interceding for us. That's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me stop there just in case that double negative confuses anyone. What it's saying here, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anybody who is a believer and who doesn't pray, shame, shame. Look at the offer that is given to us here, coming boldly before that throne of His grace. Look at verses 14 and 15 as we continue the parade of the virtues and the majesty of Jesus. We've seen Jesus as our judge. And what an awe-inspiring couple of verses here. Jesus as our judge, the one whose head and hair were white like white wool or like snow. The one whose eyes were a flame of fire, blazing, some of the translations tell us. The one whose feet were like burnished bronze, significant for portraying judgment in the Scriptures. The one of the voice like the roar of many waters. Look at verse 16. We've seen Jesus as sovereign. He's the one in control. He's the one who held the seven stars in his right hand. Verse 16, we've seen Jesus as our protector. The sword is to protect us from false teaching and lies against the truth of God. That sword will show up again if you look on the screen and see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Verse 16. We've seen Jesus in His divine glory. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Picture Jesus as the judge and then picture Jesus as the sun so bright that He can't even be looked upon. How long can you look at the sun without injuring yourself? Not very long. The Lord Jesus in all of that brightness. And what really spoke to me was verse 17. We've seen the effect that seeing Jesus revealed in his glory had on the apostle John. John fell at Jesus' feet in absolute fear and awe, as though he were dead. There was nothing left in him. Remember now, this is Jesus revealed. This is Jesus unveiled. This is Jesus disclosed in a way that John had never seen him. This is the same John that laid on Jesus' chest while they were eating. This is the same John that was with Jesus for three years. This was the beloved apostle. This is the one who had seen Jesus perform miracles. He'd seen Jesus in many, many times and places and cases. It was absolutely awe-inspiring for him to see part of the unveiling of the Lord Jesus. It was overwhelming to him, too much to take. It's a good thing that Jesus followed that up by saying fear not verses 17 and 18 we've seen Jesus other words of reassurance to John I am the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades a lot of persecution going on at that particular time a whole lot of persecution and John was told it's okay You're in exile. You're on Patmos. Other Christians are being killed because of their faith. You're here in exile because of the testimony that you had for the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's okay, though. You don't have to worry about something that people worry about. You don't have to worry about death because I hold the keys of that. We've seen Jesus, after all of this, tell John something very simply. Write, therefore. You think John questioned him at all (laughs) when Jesus said that? after seeing Jesus in that glory. He said, right, therefore, uh, any hesitation, anything um, by way of uh, questioning, I-, I think he said, where's my pen? <laughs> Whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And that's when he wrote chapter 1. And he followed that with Revelation 2 and 3. And that's the middle part of that divine outline given to us in Revelation 119. The period that's referred to as those, and I've added those things, that are, or those that are, literally. John was told to write what would take place in the present church age, that period of time that would end when the church was taken from the world, that age that to him was present at that time. Beginning with chapter 4 is the final point of the divine outline of Revelation 119, the period referred to as those things that are to take place after this. And if you look at Revelation 4, verse 1, Further reference is made there. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, and this would have been the the voice of the Lord Jesus, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Believing chapter 4 is the after this, after the church age, after chapters 2 and 3 those things that are the second point in the divine outline of chapter 1 verse 19 let's take a, a look at that second part of the outline it involves revelation 2 and 3 and in those two chapters are in we're giving an overview tonight of seven letters seven letters to churches addressed to the angel of a particular church and you may recall that we talked about that angel who is the angel is it a real angel it could be a real angel It could be a messenger who would deliver the letter to a particular church, or it could be the pastor of the church. I'm inclined to believe it was the pastor of the church because he is the one who would then share that with the congregation. There are other reasons that I noted before as well. But this is something to me that's very interesting. These letters to the churches are among the very last direct quotations from the Lord Jesus. and are the only words he directly addressed to the church. They're precious treasures. If you have a red letter edition, this is easy for you. You'll look at the book of Revelation and you'll see chapters 2 and 3 are going to be red lettered. You'll see that chapter 4, verse 1 that we just wrote, we just read, is red lettered as well, a word of the Lord Jesus. Turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 15. If you have a red letter edition, you will see these are believed to be the words of the Lord Jesus. Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Then if you'll turn to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22, there's a message the Lord Jesus directly is leaving with us. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition, there aren't too many red letters in the book of Revelation. That's why I say these are among the very last things Jesus directly said. And... The things that he said directly to his church. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. And then we can respond, Come, Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice if he came tonight? How many of you would be disappointed if you didn't get to see Monday? Is there anybody here who would be disappointed if you didn't get to see Monday? I'm not. It would be great if he were to come even now. There's another significant thought that comes from these, and that is that when we realize this whole book is a revelation of Jesus, The idea here is that Jesus is revealing his will for his church in a direct and personal way. This is the Lord Jesus speaking directly to us who are his church, his children. Part of that is the idea that with all the calamities occurring and about to occur, because when we read the letters to the seven churches, we will see that for some of them, there are going to be some judgments. There will be punishment. They're disobeying. There are severe warnings that are given. And it's as if the Lord Jesus says, before this comes about, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to write this all down so that you're going to be able to see what's going on. Before showing the people the horrors that lie ahead, Jesus is communicating. He's a communicator. He doesn't want people to misunderstand what's going on. He doesn't want them to misunderstand the harsh consequences that are going to be there. I think in, in terms of a father preparing his children for a spanking that they're about to receive. This happened in my home as we were growing up. My brother and sister got spanked um, because they were they were naughty sometimes, and um, maybe maybe myself a little bit too. But my dad would always preface it. He would never spank us in anger. He would never lash out at us. He would say, "I want you to go upstairs." I want you to sit down in your room and I want you to think about what you just did and I'm going to come up in a little while and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to tell you what it was that you did. I'm going to explain very clearly, but I think you've got a pretty good idea already. But he would always do that and then he would say, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Um, you know what he meant by that, right? Um, it's going to hurt It's going to hurt him a lot more than it hurt us. And then he would proceed to lovingly discipline us. It's the picture that I think of when I see this here before us. There are several ways that these letters can be applied. Now, if you're looking at chapter 2, several ways these letters, and there, there are seven of them, as we've said, to individual churches, they can be applied to admonish the seven local churches in Asia Minor to whom the words were written. And some people will stop there. They will say, that's all that is here. There are seven churches. They needed some instruction by the Lord Jesus, and they were given that. These seven churches, if you can see on the screen, you can see that the letters begin with the letter to Ephesus, goes up to Smyrna, goes up to Pergamum, comes back down, Thyatira, Cyrus, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. That, incidentally, I never take anything for granted. That's not the Philadelphia near us. Okay, these are all there just north of the Mediterranean Sea, and there's the island of Patmos, and that's where John is writing from. There are some who say that these seven letters uh, speak to those seven churches, and that is all. And they certainly do speak to those seven churches, but I don't believe that it is all. How else we can view this is to speak to all of the churches at that time as well as today because these are representative churches. There were a lot more than seven churches that were there even in that particular section. So they're representative churches, so they speak to all of the churches in a specific way, then and now. The Moratorian Canon, an ancient document that, that, that uncovered some uh, old-time writings and old-time parts of the Scripture, some, some great attestation to the fact that the New Testament is so, so real and genuine and, and vital, uh, this quote John also in the Revelation writes indeed the seven churches, yet speaks to all. And and I believe that our church can learn many lessons by studying these letters. There's a third way that these can be applied, and that is to apply to individual believers as well as imposters within each congregation. All that glitters is not necessarily a believer. There are those to whom churches were involved then and now, there are believers sitting next, right next to those who are not necessarily believers. But to apply to individual believers, it's not just to a corporate entity. It's not just to the church at large. For example, Revelation 3.20, written to the church at Laodicea. That's the lukewarm church, the one that the Lord Jesus said he'd like to spit right out of his mouth because it's nauseating to him. It makes him sick. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're somewhere in between Got to believe that there are unbelievers mixed in with believers in in that kind of a church. But here's what it says in Revelation 3.20. Behold, Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock if, here's the word I want to emphasize, anyone, anyone, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And repeatedly, If you want to look for an example, you can look in chapter 2, verse 7, if you glance there in the letter to Ephesus. Repeatedly, he who has an ear, notice, he who has an ear, let him hear. Or, you'll see repeated as well, over and over again, to the one who conquers. Some of your translations will say to the one who overcomes. So we've got this pointed at individuals. He who has an ear, let him hear to the one who conquers. So I believe that that's very, very significant. If you want another example of that, you can see it in chapter 2, verse 11, to the church in Smyrna. You'll see the same thing, but you'll see it in all the letters as we go through. Whoever has an ear. So this is for every individual. There's also another reason or another application we can give, that's to give a panorama of the progressive stages of church development. Now, you're going to have to be sharp to stay with me on this one. There are those who teach that this, these letters to the seven churches give a panorama of the progressive stages of church development. In other words, this is a prophecy of how the church at large would rise and fall in its spiritual condition before God over the centuries that they will divide church history into seven parts and say this first part of church history reminds us of the letter to the church at Ephesus, the second one to the church at Smyrna, etc., as we go through. So seven stages in a continuum represented by the seven churches in Revelation. Now please hear me on this. This is a man-made conclusion based on observation, not on Revelation. And I say that, so we've got to be very cautious with this. I'm bringing out some of this just because it may be of interest to you, but you'll see this in some of your readings or studying as you go through. I at least want us to be exposed to this, but be cautious with this. This is a man-made observation. This is not revelation when people divide up the stages of church history and say, here's a church, and it's referring to that in particular. This last point that I'm making is based on the fact that people will say the book of Revelation is overwhelmingly prophetic in nature. It's not unreasonable to assume that the order in which the churches are listed is significant prophetically also. And so you will see this prophetic profile if you do anything online or if you do any reading in the commentaries, particularly some of the older commentaries, some of the more conservative ones. uh, What you will see is... The church at Ephesus, basically, not exclusively or entirely, but basically describing what took place during the apostolic church. Or at Smyrna, would be with regard to the persecuted church. Pergamos describes conditions at maybe we're involved with the part of church history where they refer to it as the married church, where the church was married to the world. And we see that certainly in Pergamos. Same thing with Thyatira, Cyrus. By the time we get to Philadelphia, Philadelphia represents that time when the, the great missionary movement. And when we get to the last one, Laodicea, the apostate church, where many people have left true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man some of you may be familiar with by the name of Lehman Strauss, and Lehman Strauss says this: each church individually and the seven churches combined set forth prophetic anticipation. I see in them seven ages or stages in the life of the church on earth, commencing with Pentecost and concluding with the Rapture. And then he quotes R. H. Clayton, who wrote, "It can be no mere coincidence that these epistles do not, uh, excuse me, do set out." the salient characteristic of the church through the centuries, and no one can deny that they are presented in historic sequence. Incidentally, some people will deny that. A lot of people will deny that. When John wrote, he probably did not see that each epistle contained an announcement of the future any more than did David when he wrote Psalm 22. Nevertheless, there is a prophetic picture of seven periods of the church history on earth. He concludes his quote by saying this, For myself, I do not doubt for one moment that a prophetic foreview of the entire church dispensation was in the mind of our Lord when he dictated the letters to John. My personal study of church history brings me to this conclusion. Again, this whole premise is interesting, but somewhat subjective. Do you understand what I'm saying about that? Okay, I'm not saying this is something that... Here's the chapter and verse that tells us that that is happening. People observe history. They observe the points. And they, uh, the points of the letters to the churches, and they say there are a whole lot of similarities, but we've got to take that with a, uh, a, a box of salt, not a grain of salt. There are a number of common characteristics in the letters that we're going to see as we look at the overview right now. Some common characteristics. Each letter has, first of all, a destination. It is addressed to a literal church. There is a historical background that can help us. It can be very important for us to see. But each one of these was a real church at that particular time. So there will be a destination in all of the letters. Each letter has a description of Jesus in it that we will see. You can describe Jesus in an infinite number of ways. But the particular description of Jesus in each church is unique to the needs of that church. It has special significance and meaning to them. It may be that they're going to be admonished for something. It may be that they're going to be praised for something or encouraged. They will see an aspect of the Lord Jesus that will reinforce that to them. Each church but one receives a commendation. That church at Laodicea doesn't receive any commendation. There's nothing really good to be said about them. Each church will receive a condemnation except Smyrna and Philadelphia. So we find that most of the churches receiving a condemnation, each one receiving a commendation, but Laodicea. Each letter contains an exhortation. The Lord Jesus Christ counsels and encourages his churches to add what is needed and take away what is wrong. Each letter includes an expectation of promise, an expectation of promise. There are blessings promised to those who are the conquerors or the overcomers or victors, if you will. Some of the translations call them each of those. So each letter including an expectation of promise. And each letter also includes a consequence of disobedience. Except Smyrna and Philadelphia, they don't get a consequence of disobedience because they don't get condemnation either. So these are common characteristics that we will see and analyze and evaluate. Now, I want to get very practical as we close in these next couple of moments, and I'm quoting from James Hamilton, who wrote a commentary just a couple of years ago on Revelation. He asks us to think about this. He says, if Jesus were to write a letter to your local church, what do you think he would say? Think of it. The risen Christ himself dictating a message addressing the strengths and weaknesses of your local church, prefaced by a description of some aspect of his own glory, containing important information for the immediate future of the church, and concluded by a promised reward offered to those who heed his word. Wouldn't we want to hear what he has to say to us? He goes on to say, The greatest need of a local church is not to be more impressive by worldly standards of measurement. Whether that means having a bigger crowd, a better building, or being more able to boast about all the great things we do. The greatest need of a local church is to be faithful to Jesus, to hold fast to the gospel, and to live lives that are pleasing to him. And I have good news for us. In the Bible, God has given us everything that we need to know to be right with God through Jesus and live in a way that pleases him. In other words, the goals that we have as a church should be the goals the Lord Jesus has for us, not the ones that popular society say that's how churches should measure themselves. We measure ourselves by those very very significant things, by being faithful to the Lord Jesus, holding fast to the gospel, and doing the things that he's told us to do. So turn with me to 1st Peter actually 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. 2nd Peter chapter 1 Verses 3 and 4, James Hamilton alluded to this in what he wrote. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them... You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and then so on and so on with other good things. We've got letters that actually have been written to churches. The imagination says, what if he wrote a letter to us? Well, if he wrote a letter to us, he's already done that and will do well to listen To what's before us hold fast to the gospel to be zealous for it to be courageous witnesses one more passage if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 1 I was reading this recently and it spoke to me with something that I wasn't anticipating and I wanted to share it tonight when I'm thinking about this what was the last thing Jesus said to his followers before he ascended into heaven what was the last thing Hold fast to the gospel we've been talking about. Be zealous for the gospel. Be courageous witnesses. What was the last thing Jesus said? And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. He said to them, and that's his followers there at the ascension time, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine the impact that those words must have had to them at that particular time and the impact they should have to us? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Farewell. He was gone. We need to hold fast to the gospel, to be zealous for it, to be courageous witnesses. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we go through these letters and we receive our instructions. We see the way you've warned the church, encouraged the church. May we take those warnings as a church and as individuals, as you intend. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.